Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. This is Julie Hendricks, the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime. I'm really delighted to welcome Deborah H. Goldstein to the podcast today. Judge Deborah H. Goldstein writes Kensington's Sarah Blair Mystery Series. She's also the author of two standalones, Maze in Blue and Should Have Played Poker, a Carrie Martin and the Mahjong Players Mystery. Her novels and short stories have been named Agatha, Anthony, Derringer, Claymore, The Night for Sinners, and Silver Falchian finalists, and received Silver Falchian, Ippy, AWC, and BWR awards. Deborah's short pieces have appeared in numerous periodicals and anthologies, including Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine and Black Hat Mystery Magazine. She served on the National Board of Sisters in Crime and Mystery Writers of America and was president of the Guppy and SEMWA, Southeastern MWA chapters, and is returning to the National Sync Board this October. A civic volunteer and mother of four, Deborah is married to a man whose blood runs crimson. (laughs) Deborah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Julie. I'm looking forward to this hour. I am as well. Um, you and I have known each other for a long time. So, you know, I but I don't want to shortcut things for our listeners. And I'm going to start where I always start. When did you say to yourself, I want to write a mystery novel? The mystery novel, I probably said to myself right after I graduated college. I had an idea for a mystery set on the University of Michigan's campus. Now, did I write it then? No. My idea of writing, though, began well before that. I was probably six years old or so when I said, I'm going to write. So one thing has led to another, and the mystery came later because that's what I enjoyed reading. And so talk to me when you went. So when how long ago did you finally say, I'm going to write that novel? I've been thinking about since I was a kid. I've, I've been, you know noodling this in my brain. I want to write a book. When did that happen for you? I wanted to write and write a book probably by the time I was a teenager, but Mm -hmm. I didn't do it. I was doing the journalism things. I thought I'd actually be a journalism major. Um, That lasted till I got to college. But then in college, I thought I was going to be a writer. And I went between two things. I couldn't decide if I wanted to do writing or, and I'm going to divert from your question just a little here, yeah. or if I wanted to go you know, to law school or whatever. So when I graduated, I deliberately graduated early, went to New York with two goals in mind, get a job in publishing and um, get on Jeopardy. These were my goals. So I left early. I got to New York two days after graduation and I started looking for those, you know, my goals. Just in case it didn't work out, I typed law school applications that night in the night for the next fall. I got lucky, and by April, I had accomplished my two goals. And I realized I didn't want to be at the bottom of the publishing heap, so I went to law school. 
So now to get back to your question, I am the one who from that point on thinks I want to write, but is the one who's writing the skits for everybody. I'm the one that's talking about writing, but never writing more than a chapter for a law book or very boring legal arguments. I kept talking and talking about writing and to a point that my children knew I wanted to write. My friends knew I wanted to write, but I never did it. Mm-hmm. So if I can continue, um, I'll give you two quick anecdotes. When my son was approximately seven or eight years old, he says, you, you know, he talked to, he heard me talking about, I want to write a book. He says, so why aren't you doing it? I said, because you never go to bed. Your twin <laughs> sister goes to bed perfectly. You never go to bed. He was a night owl like I am. That night, he asked me again about this book. Can you make money? Now, he's my entrepreneur today. I said, maybe if I start now, I could do it by make money by the time you go to college. So Stephen looked at me, and that night he went to bed perfectly. My husband was out of town. Both twins go to bed perfectly. I did what any red-blooded American female would do. I went up to my office. I did my nails. I watched a great movie. I had a wonderful time. I got the kids up in the morning. He looked at me. He goes, so did you finish? Yeah. Well, the answer is no, I didn't. Finally, a few years later, a friend said, I'm I'm tired of hearing this. Come to the beach with me. Leave Joe and the kids. And what I want you to do is you write all weekend. We're going out for good dinners, but you write all weekend. If you don't write your book or at least something, I never want to hear about this again. But Julie, I wrote 85 long pages. And I say long because it was a long yellow legal pad Mm -hmm. looking at the water. Five of those pages ended up in maize and blue, but that was the book I had in my head. From that date to when it got published was probably another decade mm-hmm. because it kept going back in the draw till when I had time. But I knew that weekend I could see a beginning, a middle, and an end, and I knew I could write that book. And that was the crux of when that book became um, a reality. So that's a very good friend who, um, with some tough love, who says you've got to do this because without a contract and writing that first book, and it's not as if you had nothing else going on, Deborah. (laughs) You had kids and you were a lawyer and I don't know where, when you became a judge. I I know that you were a judge by this point. Yeah, because you were were young when you went to the bench. So it's... um, that's a lot. That's a full life. This was my extracurricular activity. But from that point on, I started making time for it. And I said, it went in and out of the drawer, depending on life, but it wasn't forgotten. It was just not always the priority. And then when it became the priority, you know, kids get older, they start driving, they start having activities. You're no longer anything except the chauffeur. I could find time. I could write between midnight and 4 a.m. I could write on weekends. And suddenly that book came together. Between midnight and 4 a.m. <laughs> you, you like the hours that I like. Um, so how did you hone or develop your craft as you're, as you're doing this? Because just in the little bit you've told us, you know, you want a job in publishing, you want it to be on Jeopardy. 
chalk that up to something I didn't know that you'd been on Jeopardy. Um, you know, you, you're obviously a, an achiever, you know, went to law school, judge, everything else. How did you hone your craft? How did you develop the craft of being a writer? In the beginning, I was naive. And I think that's something a lot of writers are. I didn't know enough to take a lot of craft classes. I looked at some books, but they didn't all sink in. I took some, you know, creative writing, a course or two in college. I was an English major and a you know, history major, but the, those didn't really drill it into my head. It wasn't until I started going to some a, a conference that a friend dragged me to that I started understanding more of the craft. Mm-hmm. What I did not understand at that point, I finally understood the styling of the book, but I didn't understand the business side of this publishing world. And I didn't understand how the two have to go together. So what was happening was I wasn't writing. You know, we all talk about books that go in the drawer. And at that point, this book was something that went in the drawer. Um, For one thing, I was on page 85 or 86 before I was killing anybody. And there's an author, Anne George, who's passed away way too young. But the Bad Hair Day books. Wonderful series of books. Well, she's from Birmingham, Alabama. And of all things, my daughter had, she was brought in to teach a special class to some of the ninth graders. And my daughter was picked for that class. A few weeks later, she was also a very big volunteer with the Girl Scouts. She did a program and it was for adults, but I was allowed to bring my my troop which included that daughter. So I went up to her at the end and I said, you know, Miss George, I have a question. A, I love your books. I've read everything. I've even read the one that just came out last week. I said, I'm having a real problem. My book, it's 85 pages before anything happens, i.e. a dead body. And I said, I know this isn't going to work for a first mystery. What is your secret? She said, she started laughing. She says, you know, I have that same problem. So when I get into that, I just drop the body and keep going. And I almost, I had to hold back my laughter. I had just read the book. And if any of you recall, the um, two cousins are sitting having a meal in a restaurant. And they suddenly look up and a body drops. And that's on the first <laughs> page. And she was right. She must have had trouble because the book went along fine, but she couldn't have gotten that body in any earlier except <laughs> copying from the roof. But, you know, I took that, I went back, and I realized something called editing for the first time. I had been, I write linearly. And in the linear way that I write, I was trying to describe a sorority meeting. So I did everything about that meeting. And then as I read, read it, I said, what do I need the 15 pages? People aren't going to care about the meeting. They just want to know what happened. It became right. two sentences. And suddenly the body got closer to the front. <laughs> um, uh, for folks who are listening, I am going to add notes and I'll put Ann George in the um, notes so that you can look her up as an author because she really was, um, she was a wonderful writer. She not only was an excellent mystery writer, she was a wonderful poet. She was Alabama's poet laureate. Wow. People don't wow. know that. Her. Yeah. She died in her early 50s. But um, 
too young, but she's she she has a legacy, and we're talking about her, which is helpful. Um, so the dropping the body and that inciting incident and the mechanics of books are something that you 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 can learn, but you don't know until you've done written a book or two, and then you can understand. Do you agree with that? I do partially. I think that intellectually you understand it or hear it. It's not until you start reading and looking at books from an analytical viewpoint that you see that. Um, Once you're really writing, you never read the same way again. That's right. Unless it's a wonderful book and then you get lost. But I also think it was at that point for me that I started really concentrating on craft. I took... um, like, a, like, for example, Sleuth Fest, the day before on Thursday, will have a craft day, as opposed to the day when the authors are, the other days when paneling, which is more for, you know, fans and readers. Um, I started going to anything I could find craft. I was lucky that I had gone to a conference just after Mays came out, and I was seated next to Chris Reardon, and she looked at the book, and Chris um, flipped through it and said, hmm, not bad. And I thought it was hilarious. But anyway, she and I started talking and she ended up editing my second book. uh, But what happened is she really gave me a lesson and she gave me some very good advice. Before I left that weekend, she said, you're a new writer. You need craft. Go join Sisters in Crime. Go join MWA. She had if if I had not talked to her that day, I would been way behind the wheel of joining organizations which offered me craft. I joined the Guppies because, A, I'm not where you have a brick-and-mortar chapter. I'm three hours from the nearest one, which I do belong to Atlanta. But the Guppies being on Internet, I was able to take subsidized classes, and I took everything they offered. Mm-hmm. And all that helped by the time I got to my second book. By the time I got to Kensington's, I can say I, I think you can see an improvement in my writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and guppies, uh, for those who don't know what the guppies are, they're an online chapter, um, huge chapter of Sisters of Crime called the Great Unpublished, uh, is what it stands for. And you were president, um, you know, you're, you're, you're extraordinary about service and we'll talk more about that. But the, the guppies are an amazing resource. Um, for uh, the the unpublished or the newly published, and also you know the figuring it out in the middle. What am I going to do next? Um, and, people. And, and let me add, they originally called themselves Great Unpublished, but they really got away from that because today it's sixty. It's over a thousand members. It's the largest yeah. chapter, and over sixty percent are published in some form or fashion. Um, there is constant rotation, but the main thing is people who are really published hang around. Yeah. And mentors and subgroups and things to help others. It really is a hands up type work chapter. Yeah. Um, and so you're, you know, the guppies, you're taking classes, you're, you're, you're developing craft. Chris Reardon also wrote a book about writing mysteries, right? Yes, she did. It's called Don't Sabotage Your Submission. She has another, there's another version of it out too. Don't sabotage your mystery or your book or something. But don't sabotage your submission covers most of the um, key points. I will. Um, I'll put that in the show notes as well. So, you mm-hmm. know, because as we're talking about these names, these this is ways to learn and ways to think. Um, so for you, you said it had always it had been mysteries because you had uh, you read mysteries. Um, what 
so far you're writing generally in the cozy, you know, traditional cozy realm. What about that genre drew you? I found that I, I did a lot of traveling and the cozy mystery was, a, if it was a good one, was a whodunit. Mm-hmm. It, um, I always considered the cozy mystery to kind of be like Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire um, in the sense that every element, you, you know, it's clean and that you don't have the blood and things on the page. But you have to have every element that you need in crime fiction in there. It just mm-hmm. has to be more subtly woven in. So yeah. it's Ginger Rogers dancing backwards. Yeah. And for me, I could read two of those as I flew across the country. Um, so they were my, because of my job and things, this was relaxation. Mm-hmm. I didn't find a thriller as relaxing. So a biography or a cozy mystery were my um, go-tos. So when I started writing, it seemed natural to go into that genre. Um, I am writing, as you know, other things now. And my short stories, which I do write, and, and since I've been writing, I guess about 40 some have now been published, they tend to often be a little darker than yeah. my cozy. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a little of everything. I think we all have it in us, but there were certain writers I just truly enjoyed. They were cozy. Um, so you mentioned at the beginning with your friend who, you know, took you away and said, you're writing all weekend, which again, what a gift. We all need those friends in our lives. Um, and you wrote on legal pads, hand wrote on legal pads. I've talked to a few lawyers on this podcast and in, in life, and a lot of lawyers do write by hand. I mean, that's because that's part of what they do, you know, in their law, in their legal world. Do you still write by hand or are no. you? Okay. No, um, part of it was the evolution in the years that I was a lawyer and a judge, we evolved into being a more computer oriented business model. Yeah. I have always been in the forefront of using the computer. Consequently, I often was a guinea pig on the um, federal administrative law judges <laughs> for different models they were trying of computer work. So as I became more skilled at that, my writing quickly evolved. Even Maze and Blue was eventually, you know, written on the computer. Uh, the biggest difference now is used to be always on a standalone, sitting between two windows to write. Yeah. Now it's the laptop wherever I feel like curling up. Yeah, <laughs> so much better. Um, tell me about your process. My process is I hear a word, I hear a sentence, I have an idea, and then I start writing. I'm a pantser at heart. I may have an idea of where I'm going, but I don't always have it right. Um, One Taste Too Many, which is the first Sarah Blair book, is the best example I can use. That book I had gotten the idea for. I knew how it was going to go. And I even thought I knew who who was the killer. I started writing. And man, sometimes when you're writing, you get in that zone and it just goes. And that's what was happening with that book. And then I got about halfway done and my mom passed away and I couldn't write for a few months. Came back to writing, picked it up, picked it up at the point of the, which was the middle, which really up to then I really liked, kept writing and finished the book and said, I don't like this. This book is horrible from the middle on. And I couldn't figure out why. So I threw it down and about two weeks later, I woke up and I go, you idiot, you have the wrong killer. No wonder it doesn't work. 
I threw out half of a book. I rewrote, and that book went on to be a Women's World selection. Mm-hmm. It went on to win some award things. But the more important thing was I had the right killer. I had the right characters. And the funny thing, I didn't have to rewrite anything in the first half. The red herrings, the clues that all pointed to the correct killer had already been interwoven into the manuscript. Yeah. You had interrupted your flow by life, which happens to everyone, and and needed to get back there. And by trying to force it, because from day one, I thought so-and-so was going to be the killer. Yeah. And then I realized he wasn't. But I realized that um, it made the book so much better. Sometimes as a writer, even when you do a perfect outline, my editor for the five books that exist already in the um, Sarah Blair series my editor always wanted a detailed synopsis, which I don't do very well. But, you know, I was told, write it like detailed. So I wrote the first one, it was 12 pages. His next comment, only comment on it was, okay, that's good for book two, but next time, double space. Um, <laughs> but I found that when I have to Bible it out like that, I'm not Jeffrey Deaver who can write hundreds of pages of outline. There's always something that comes up. And John can always expect he's going to get an email. By the way, I just <laughs> discovered I need another character. And she's sitting on the floor in this scene and she really works through the whole book. Is that okay? And of course he says yes. Yeah. Because it is. It's a bridge that's needed. Yeah. You know? Or yeah. a character tells me something about themselves and I go, oh, I didn't realize that. <laughs> <laughs> and has your... Because we, you know, I talk to a lot of writers on this podcast and in general, um, and, you know, there's no one way to write. And also our ways of writing evolve and change. So I know that you've been working on a suspense novel. Mm -hmm. So when you wrote this, well, let's start with Sarah Blair. Uh, The hook of that series. A woman who's more frightened of being in the kitchen than she is of murder. Yeah. So, <laughs> and the recipes in that series are a hoot because they are literally like, you know, I'm Jello in a can, yeah, exactly. uh, Jello in a can, spinach pie made with Stouffer souffle. They all either <laughs> have to be made with um, very simple ingredients, or they're just darn funny. And they're all real recipes, and they all work, yeah. but they're not exactly what a model cook would be using. Yeah. Don't Which ask is, me to bring a vegetable, I bring it, that is spinach souffle. And so, you know, a hook for a, for a series, any series, whether it's, you know, a traditional detective or, or uh, a cozy, um, goes beyond what the, you know, just what it's about. This isn't about a cook. This is about, you know, her her relationship to the kitchen and also um, gives you an, a sense of her world uh, just by, by telling us the hook, you know, that this is, this is her and this is, you can imagine the world around. Um, but when you're writing a standalone, it's different. You're writing the whole, you've got to create the world and the reader doesn't know that who's going to survive, who isn't. And suspense is different than than um, than uh, cozy. Did your process change as you were writing the book? Not fully. What changed was to remember to keep a pace. Whereas in my cozy, you're right because it's a series. 
I have created characters that I bring in. Like she has a twin sister, Sarah, who is an amazing cook. I play off the family theme. Their mother is one of those Mother Maybell, who's the kind who can tell you to bless your heart. And um, you think she's told you something very nice. But <laughs> in, the co- in the suspense, I had to rapidly create the character, rapidly let you know her background, but at the same time drop sprinkling it all through the book. And you're not going to keep these characters going in the same sense. So um, you're creating the world that has to be in the moment. It doesn't, it doesn't have books that you can refer back to and have the reader building like blocks on each time. There's an arc. In the series, Sarah goes from a woman who at 18 is uh, married. She drops out of college. She got married. She's, but when you meet her, she's 28. She's divorced. And all she got out of the marriage was Ra-Ra, her cat. Um, the Siamese cat and she live in an efficiency apartment. And unlike her twin, who is extremely focused and has been all the way through, Sarah is not. But she's she's starting over. She just never knew it could be so difficult. In the suspense, I don't have time to build the arc because from book one to where Sarah ends up in book five, there is a definite arc. Her confidence builds, her home life improves, Mm -hmm. her relationship with others. And the relationship with others is also expanded because a character who could be very minor in the first book by the fifth book, maybe the prime suspect or maybe come up with an idea that Sarah bounces off of. In the standalone, you've got to do that all within the 80,000 words you're working mm-hmm. in. So I have to start with a premise. I have to let you know where it's going, but I have to move it a lot. It, it's faster. And the arc of the character has to go from that first page to the end. So when the reader ends that book, they know where she's been and why she's got into where she is. You may not know where she goes in the future. You know, if somebody wants a second book, but um, <laughs> the concept has to be channeled. And the character arc is such an important part, uh, certainly a part of Cozy's. I mean, it's one thing that that stands, you know, that it's a reason Cozy's hold on to us is because we want to visit those people again. We care about that cast of characters and, and their arcs and everything else. Um, but in any book, a character arc, you have to show growth or change. Maybe it's not growth. Maybe it's going backwards, but you have to show change in a character. They can't be static. Um, and over a series that can get tricky because, you know, five books is a lot. So where do you want to take the character and how fast? And, you know, uh, there's a lot of conversations with cozy writers about romance and, you know, the reason that, that triangles happen is because people have contracts and they're not sure if it's going to be, you know, they're going to get more books on a contract. I was on a, panel with Jen McKinley and she talked about this. She said, the reason triangles exist in my series is because I didn't want to leave the readers hanging. And then I thought, well, get three more books. Like, okay, wait, got to break them up (laughs) because I need something to work on. And that's, that's how these things happen. So do you, um, 
you know, did you miss in writing the suspense, that freedom of I'm going to have another book or I'm going to do this? Or did you really enjoy that world building and working within the confines of of delivering to the reader in one book? In the book that tentatively is titled The Night for Sinners, which is the one I'm marketing now, um, I really enjoyed being in the confines. I almost didn't develop an ending, but I have now, of where she could potentially be going because readers are going to want to know that. Um, I had ended it on a certain note, and then I realized it wasn't fulfilling. And it needed didn't need a lot. It needed a few paragraphs to let you know that she has these choices. What choice she'll finally make may not be clear yet, but she now knows she has these choices. Whereas in a cozy, you would probably end it with the the, um, potential of these choices, but you wouldn't really have her necessarily thinking through the choices. And I think that's the difference because I think you can walk away from the night for sinners knowing who's good, who's bad, who's indifferent, and knowing, yeah, I like that character. I, I see where she where, where her arc came. I see you, 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 the reader won't call it the arc, but they'll they'll see where she developed. Mm-hmm. And there'll be a self kind of satisfaction in that. Whereas in the cozy, um, like I said, you wouldn't necessarily tie that up right away. Let's talk about writing advice, you know, and good and bad. What's the worst piece of writing advice you ever got? Probably write exactly what you know, because for me, that didn't work. Um, Steal what you know is good, but not write what you know necessarily. And I'll give an example. My second book, which is, you know, standalone, should have played poker or Carrie Martin in the Mahjong Players Mystery. Mm -hmm. It opens with um, Carrie talking to a woman and it opens with, you know, with an interesting quote about the first time I thought about killing him, we were sitting in that chicken place, you know, the one with the rubber chicken on the top. Um, and so you know that the woman she's talking to thought about killing this man, but but it, but the word is thought about killing your father. And so that you now you're tied to Carrie. Now you go into the next sentence and she's going, how she's stunned it. It's the first time she's talked to her mother and seen her mother in 26 years. So, you know, her mother has abandoned her or something and that she left rather than killing it. She says to her and Carrie, you know, as a lawyer, it was better that I should leave instead of just killing him or something like that. It's all in the first three paragraphs. Now, if I had written what I knew, my mother loved me. My mother gave me a good childhood. My mother did not leave. If anything, she was a helicopter mother when I went to college. You know, um, if I wrote that, that one paragraph would have been the end of the book and would have been right. boring. So right. I needed to enhance the story. But that doesn't mean you can't steal some of the characteristics that you have of what you know. Right. 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 So she could look like your mother. She could have some mannerisms like your mother. She could, but she's not your mother. I mean, that's, that's right. not, and, yeah. And in the end, this particular woman it would not fit any of my mother, 
Um, this woman has, you know, pulls her hair back into a ponytail. My mother would have been perfectly dressed. You know, I am not my mother's daughter. My mother was perfectly dressed. My mother was perfectly prepared. You can tell what kind of day yeah. it is. Um, but, but there is the essence that comes through. Like there's a love between the father and the daughter. There's a, things, things like that are things I know. I set this thing in an assist, part of, partially in an assisted living home and people say the mahjong players who are there who are the they're the comic humor of that book um they're realistic well i had seen this i knew what it was it was better to write realism there because there's humor in life but at the same time um like i said the mother portion and that murder aspect would not have happened in my life yeah I, I think that this is such a great point. It can even be, um, you know, pulled out because of research or because of, you know, there's so many ways you can learn. You can also write from different points of view, but you really need to ask yourself, should I be writing from this point of view? And also um, make sure you do the research. Make sure, you know, when you're doing that, writing a character like that mother, you you have enough knowledge that she's going to come out as as realistic and 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 three-dimensional and not just told through your lens but but she's she's a a living character on her own feet and she was and i stole other people i knew and other characters i knew and when i say characters i mean there are people you meet in your life who are larger than life you won't want to write them completely but you may want to steal some of their characteristics, some of their mannerisms, or how people interrelate to them. And so um, both the mother and another character in that particular book were both stolen from a similar woman because those were different aspects of her that I served on a board with a woman and I found her fascinating. Um, her background was fascinating. She'd been a showgirl. But she ended up marrying into uh, marrying a man who fell in love with her and became a pillar of the community. But she ended up doing a lot for theater in the community because that was her love. And she had the money to bring it to a town that didn't have it. So I I stole aspects of her, but it still wasn't her. Right. Right. Yeah. So what's the best piece of writing advice you've gotten? Do it. Because if you don't sit down and do it, it doesn't get done. I'm in the process right now. Um, I've got two short stories, and I've had time to write them for the last 10 days. And I've been doing jigsaw puzzles instead. Um, <laughs> neither story has gelled in my head completely. But I know that if I start writing, even if they're wrong, I'll get into this t- story. I have a, a short story that came out years ago, um, Grandma's tears or something of that nature and it was from a prompt about rain and I couldn't get the story I kept trying to write it from rain and I suddenly realized it wasn't rain I wanted to write about it was a relationship between a granddaughter and a grandmother and it was, the rain was her tears and they made the flowers grow and once I got the story it worked mm-hmm. but until I started really writing it and realizing I had to throw it out because it was stilted, 
it, it, it came out of here. And I know that if I start writing these two pieces that I have, you know, I'm supposed to be writing, it's going to come out. But, you know, like I said, I've gotten really good at being in the first three and the jigsaw timing puzzles. <laughs> well, um, and just do it uh, or write it, but also um, give yourself the space and the grace, as you just said, to realize it's going to need to get fixed. But you can't fix it if it's not written. That's right. How many people have come up to you, Julie, and said, I have a wonderful idea. I could write a book tomorrow. And six years later, they come up to you again. I have this wonderful idea. I could write this book, but they haven't done it. I I find some conversations with folks um, who get stuck or get, get in that middle part where it's not working and they don't keep slogging through to the end because you have to close the loop before you can fix it. I mean, writing the rest of the book will help you figure out what to do at the beginning to make it work. Um, and that's, that's the, those are the folks who I want to just say, please just finish the book. It is going to be terrible. Just finish the book because that's how you make it better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of work to write, and, and, you know, and it's, uh, it's, it's gotta be joyous and it's good. You gotta find some love, but there are times when it's just a slog. Well, I consider myself to be in my second childhood with my writing career. Because it is a joy. I love the networking. I love doing it. I get lost in it. When it's not working, I say, what the, am I doing here? And um, then I question why I am doing this. But then it comes back and I remember, I love this. And I don't want to do some, anything else right now. Uh, I think that's part of it. I think there's a motivation for most of us who write that... Even on the days when it's horrible, we know there's joy out there. And that is what makes it worth it. And you talked earlier about joining organizations at the very beginning. And I think that's also a great piece of advice. Some people wait until they've got a contract or they've done this or they've done that. And it's like, no, the minute you start thinking, I think I'd like to write a book, join an organization like Sisters in Crime. So you can meet other writers and you can find some motivation that way. Tell a couple of funny stories in that respect. And two of them occurred right in my very first Malice. Um, this goes back about a decade now. You know, it's brand new and I tend to be an introvert, believe it or not. Um, and so I'm not one of those who really is good at sitting next to you and mingling, but I try. Of course, at that malice, I sat down and I said, I'm going to go sit in this lobby with a bunch of people just before the breakfast. And I'm going to think, I, I found the one person who was there for something else and was waiting for a ride. Had nothing to do with <laughs> Anyway, but the point was, um, it's the networking. Okay, and I'm gonna, in the two stories I'm going to tell here, Mystery writers are extremely helpful to each other. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if they're at the top of the heap or the bottom. They're willing to help you. Hank is a good example who will answer a question and puts herself out there. I try to do the same. I know you do. Um, but at this particular malice, Carolyn Hart, who I have read all her coaches, mm -hmm. I have adored her uh, books. Um, Carolyn was being given the Amelia Award. Now, I want to tell you, I get in the elevator right after this debacle of 
spending this time networking with this lovely lady, except she was there for a military thing. Anyway, <laughs> bottom line, I get in the elevator with one woman, and I look and I realize it's Carolyn Hart. And I may be shy, but I'm not tongue-tied. I couldn't get out. Miss Hart, I absolutely love your books. And she smiles and goes, thank you. And the elevator, and I'm still stunned. The elevator stops, and I'm backwards to the door. And she goes, I think this is your floor. <laughs> and I literally fall back out of the elevator. <laughs> I mean, I am so humiliated. Now, weekend keeps going. And as the weekend goes, two things happen. One, they do her Amelia interview. And instead of being like some of the interviews that I've seen now years later, where everybody talks about how wonderful they themselves are or answers the questions in their own way, she gave a shout out to Terry Shanes, who had a, her first Samuel Craddock book and how what a good book it was. And she must have spent two, three minutes praising her and telling people it's a good book. Yeah. Good writer. And I'm thinking, this is a really wonderful writer that she is taking the time away from herself. Yeah. So now I had also joined Sisters in Crime that past year, and I had volunteered to be the We Love Libraries chair. I was not on the board. I was just a chair. And I was doing these different things and had just started. And I go to this meeting, you know, and Carolyn Hart and Lori King come up to me, both of whom are New York Times bestsellers. They have an idea for We Love Libraries, and they'd like to run it by me. They want to run it by me, the person who can't even figure out who is who in this room. And I'm going, that sounds really good. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I'll take it to the president and let you know. End of the conference, I'm in an elevator again. Now, this is a full elevator. It's Carolyn and her late husband, who's been alive, are on one side. I'm in the other, and there's a few people in between us. As we get all the way down, she looks at me, I look at her. I again have a wonderful time home going home you know something to that effect and i wrote a blog about it's not how you start it's how you end finish yeah and i actually sent it to her because i thought she made a difference in me at that conference and in how i was going to approach things she was kind enough not only to answer but she ended up uh, republishing it on her facebook and and so a leads to b b leads to c and I will have always remembered that. Yeah. Try to do the same, pass it forward. Well, and I, I love, I love that she, uh, the the she lived in gratitude. She was shouting out other people who who were just coming up at that point, and mm-hmm. and you know that makes a big difference. And you know, I have an idea for We Love Libraries. I mean, she was at a point in her career where she didn't have to care about We Love Libraries, but she had an idea, and she's a you know she she's an important person in the Sisters in Crime history as well. But uh, you know, I I think that that's um, that's the lesson is 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 think about be about supporting other people because when your time comes they're there for you but mm-hmm. you know you you've got to be supportive of other people i agree yeah um i love that story i i i'm going to conferences and events um 
and listening. Sometimes it's just that one sentence in a, you know, a place where you didn't expect to learn anything that can make, can transform you or, or re-energize you or give you, give you a new perspective. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, going online also works, but just participating in the community as well makes such a difference. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Sisters in Crime uh, for a second. And then I want to ask you about um, what you thought your publishing journey would be like, (laughs) Uh, what surprised you. But um, Sisters in Crime, you were on the national board. We were on the national board together. Um, and, um, And then uh, you cycled off because you do it for, you know, you could be on the board for five years and then you cycle off. And now you're coming back to the board as of October, 2023, um, as the co-chapter liaison, which isn't a small role. Um, And, you know, you've also been on the MWA board, both regionally and nationally. Talk to me about service and why you keep, and the guppies, you know, you were involved with them for so many years in in leadership. Can you talk to me about why service matters? I have always thought, whether it was writing or anything else, that service was important. We are given wonderful things in our life, but we need to pay them forward. That's part of it. The other factor in the writing career is very selfish. The more I put out there, the more I get back personally. It works for networking. It works for me to understand concepts. It works for me to meet people. And that's back to networking. But it also means that I'm actually meeting people at all levels. Mm -hmm. You know, when you first start writing, you make friends. And I can remember sitting at a table one night at a conference with four women I had just met, we had gone for dinner and we all had a dream to write. And we were below the lowest level of writing because not one of us had anything published. Today, it's exactly 10 years later, one has passed away. She never got beyond chapter three. She kept rewriting and rewriting. The other three of us are all published, have a number of books And I think we can all safely say we are now mid-list. We're not New York. Well, one of them is actually USA, but nobody is um, New York Times. Right. But we have all evolved up together. Now, Mm -hmm. somebody in the crowd is going to break through, sure. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't matter. We have been there supportive in the good times and the bad times. And by volunteering, I have learned so much and I've met so many people. And if I can give a little of what I've learned, it was the same in any other career. If you can give a little of what you've learned to somebody else, whether I was a Girl Scout leader or whether I was a writer, you've accomplished something. You may not be Mm -hmm. the one that they remember by name, but you've left a little legacy of of something in somebody else. Mm -hmm. It's the shoulders we stand upon. Mm -hmm. Now, that takes us into your next question about the, the business of writing. Um, because it all goes hand in hand. It's what you learn from A that becomes part of B. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, I also for for introverts, most writers are introverts to a, a certain degree. Volunteering also gives you a purpose so that you can talk to people. So when 
when somebody like Carolyn Hart comes up to you and says, I have an idea for We Love Libraries, you had a purpose in being in that room that gave you an opportunity to have a conversation. And I think that that's something, even, uh, you know, volunteering on registration desks or, or doing different things can help you break through any barriers uh, you have with, you know, being afraid to talk to people because many writers are, but we have to talk to people. <laughs> It's a surprisingly social thing. And writers, I don't know that at the beginning, we all understand how much community matters. I think you're right. Right. Um, so when you were starting, really starting after that 85 words, 85 pages on a, a legal pad weekend, did you, what did you think your publishing journey would look like? And what has surprised you about it? I didn't have the brains to know what it was going to look like. I did not understand. <clears throat> I had not done the time of researching the business side. I was so busy trying to see if I could get words on paper. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, I'm going to get, you know, I, I get published. Some house is going to pick me up. Some agent's going to pick me up and it's going to be smooth sailing. Everything else is, I mean, you know, you mentioned I got on early. Um, I became a judge. I was picked up at 36 for this judgeship that the average age was 58. I had a case of first impression when I was 25. That's a case that's never been decided before. So in a sense, my legal career had hit its epitome, if you would, at 25. You can't go any higher than a case of first impression. Um, so all my careers had been successful. Have been somewhat successful. Let's yeah. put it that yeah. way. You know, but I didn't know enough. And I'll give the best example. I thought publishing was going to, like I said, going to be an easy road. And the way my first book got published was very simple. I was president of the Women's Network, which is an all-professional group here. And I had decided I was going to showcase four women authors, all in different genres. Not you know, One happened to have some mystery, but nothing. They were different. And I decided I would be the moderator because a moderator should be in the background. I had just won my first writing award with a essay. I had entered all these contests in this particular conference thinking, oh, I'll win chapter, I'll win short story, I'll win something. I won for this four-paragraph essay. Maybe I should hug you, which was what happens when we start getting older. We start realizing we're becoming our mothers and some of our friends start becoming ill. Um, and maybe instead of waiting, we should reach out type of thing. Anyway, did this whole thing. And paddle had gone well, had the first person ask a question. And the person um, goes, tell us what you're writing. And I go, well, I've been working on a book and I think it's finally ready to see the world. You know, I, I said, first, well, first I said, I, I know you're referring to this essay. And I said, but let's get back to these four women. So then I turned again and asked the second for the second question. They said, tell us what else you're writing. That's when I said, I've been working on this book and I think it's ready to be for the world. Yeah, I didn't think anything of it. A few hours later, my Blackberry went off because I, you know, and I look at this thing. And it's from a publisher. The woman says, my dear friend, so-and-so, who's a PR person, was in the audience. She says there's a judge with a mystery. And she says she's seen some of your other writing, but would, I, would, would you like me to see it? I didn't know any better. 
So I asked, yes, how would you like a gift wrap? Red ribbon, blue yeah. ribbon? He said, no, no, no. Put it in an email attachment, and she told me what to put it in. And I did. And I didn't know enough. I didn't research the company. I didn't research anything. And I'll skip the next anecdote of part of the story, but the bottom line is I got an email back that said, my partner Joy and I have read Maze and Blue and would like to offer you a contract. I never had an agent on that book. I never published, you know, shopped it anywhere else. It was published. It was a wonderful experience. They were the two owners of this company were very good. It was a small house. Um, they had 22 writers. Three of us were doing very well. I they brought out a lovely book, um, ebook and trade book back at the time. I um started going to conferences, I'm getting on panels. About six months later, they'd been in business about five years. They announced they were going out of business. And I had to figure out, what do you do next? I had never shot that book, but it had sold enough copies that it was in that gray area. Not enough that anybody was going to take me on that book because too many had sold. So they Mm -hmm. couldn't reissue it and pretend it didn't exist. But not enough that it had made, you know, New York Times or USA. So it was one of those dead in the middle. Had I done my homework, I probably should have. It was good enough to be published. It should have gone to an agent. It should have gone. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I should have. I should have learned the publishing field instead of jumping at the first thing because we all want to be published. Yes. I didn't do my homework, but I did learn very quickly. Write something new. Because that's what I was told. Everybody I talked to, agents, et cetera, at conferences said, write something new. And I did. And that's, you know, one thing led to another. And what I have what I have finally learned and has evolved is this is a career of ups and downs. Um, mm-hmm. Julie, you and I have talked about this before. That And in Promophobia, I write about being orphaned. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've had the pleasure of putting two different houses out of business. <laughs> <laughs> in 10 years, I've managed, I have a 10-year writing career. Two houses have gone under um, or have stopped their mystery lines. I have also had to resell books to Harlequin and been lucky enough for them to take it. So, But then I won't have my rights back because they're tied up because they're still selling. They were still selling. So I've had this circular career of learning about rights, learning about getting things back, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, learning about how your series will progress with a certain house, how your relationships with agents will progress. And so it was, um, it's a business and a, as well as a joy. It is. Again, uh, I highly recommend folks read your um, essay in Promophobia, which is the Sisters in Crime book that Diane Belair edited, because um, being orphaned is something nobody ever talks about when you're starting out this, you know, this journey. And you could be orphaned because a company goes out of business. You could be orphaned because your editor moves to a different house. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and it, it's it's hard. I mean, it's heartbreaking. It's, it's, you know, especially if you're in the middle of a series or, or, you know, such a claim for the first one. And there's so many other pitfalls that we can have unless you understand the business and ask questions. Um, 
And I think that that's, a, you know, a generous anecdote to let people know that, you know, um, if it's not a linear path. As a lawyer, you went to law school, you know, you took the bar, you, you, there's a progression, there's a ladder and their expectations, certainly not becoming a judge at 36 can't be on an expectation list because that's so young, but there's, there's a path that you go through on a career in the arts and in publishing. Um, there's no, it's a, instead it's like a roller coaster and you go backwards sometimes and you hang upside down and feel like throwing up and the rest of it. I mean, you've got to be ready for that ride. Um, and as somebody who had such success in your career, your legal career, did that success thwart or prepare or, or give you a clarity on this publishing journey, which can be so circuitous? It did a little bit of both. It should have had me really research, just like I do with everything in the law. It should have had me completely know everything before I started, or at least have researched more. But I didn't. My mind was focused on the creative end. I had no idea of the business side. Whereas in law, I would rebuttal block everything because I was a litigator. I would try to think, anything that might come up, even if it was preposterous. And I would know what the different um, procedural rules were in the courts that I was going to be in, everything like that. Or maybe if there was a preference that a judge had, don't come to this point in the room, don't do this, don't do that. I would learn these things. In writing, it was like I had a wall. I didn't do any of that. Uh, When I finally started doing things and researching, I that's when I realized that it was a very technical business side as well. And that you need to be, you can't only rely on an agent. You can't only rely on yourself. There's so many different alternatives out there. You have to find what's best for you, but you have to understand what they are. Mm-hmm. If you go this way, does that mean you won't be able to get your books into certain bookstores? If right. you go that way, what does this mean? And one of the things a friend who was in the arts and understood the business side said to me, how much are you willing to invest in yourself? Mm -hmm. Because when you become a writer, you have a dream of being this New York Times bestseller. Statistically, it isn't going to happen. Statistically, you may need a day job to offset what you're making. And because even though you may be making a decent amount out of your books, you have websites, you have other expenses, which you don't think about in the beginning. So when you look at all these things, you have to be able to balance them. So my friend told me, this is before the first book ever came out, how much will you invest in yourself or can afford to invest in yourself For how much of a return will you get? Mm -hmm. And you have to understand that you may be putting out X, but you're only going to get Y and never see X again. Or you may put out X and you're going to get to Z. And that's wonderful. Um, Now, I have this one bouncing account that I like to make sure has X amount in it. And as long as it has X amount in it, I feel like I'm a success as a writer. Yeah, there you go. There you go. It's um, 
you give me so many things to add to the show notes for um, this uh, this conversation, and I so appreciate it. And the and the conversation about writing, but um, research into publishing and beware of the pitfalls. So Sisters in Crime just started a page called Pitfalls in Publishing, just pointing to the sites that are out there that you could just do a research on an agent or on a publishing house because a bad publishing decision is worse than not being published. Exactly. And I've seen so many of my friends go to places or make a quick, like I made a rash decision. I don't fault the people I worked with because they were wonderful. And they were honest, and they gave me back all my rights. I was able to... Which is great. I became a hybrid author by accident because they didn't want me to be stuck. They gave me even the files to immediately put back for myself. So Mm -hmm. that book immediately continued its life. And I still get royalties because Maison Blue still sells. But, you know, those are the things... Um, and I can, if I may tell one more comical story, I recently was asked at a beautiful library to come speak. And I was told I could sell books. And I said, okay, great. So I put up the Sarah Blair books because those are the current books, right? And um, the Mahjong book took me like eight years of this, you know, sort of six years to get my rights back. And I've just had recently gotten them back. And this is like six months ago. Woman comes bounding in, looks at the Sarah Blair books, which I'm very proud of. And she goes, where's the Mahjong book? <laughs> and I go, um, it's on Amazon for $90-some because it's out of print, you know. And she goes, I want the Mahjong book. And she just keeps going, and she's losing it. And the librarian kindly tells her that, uh, ma'am, yeah, she had she in her name. She says, um, we have copies of it because it was a hardcover book. We still have copies circulating, and I can gladly put your name on the list. I looked, I'm thinking list. She says, yes, there's the two copies. There's at least three names, each waiting for it. Now I'm sitting there going, that book came out in 2016. They stopped doing mysteries in 2016. It is now 2023. I literally just got my rights back because it had sold to Harlequin. And the, even though they didn't keep, the, the company didn't keep its uh, mystery aligned, they kept that book because it was still selling. So it mm-hmm. had to go through and I'm thinking, if there is a library in Huntsville, Alabama that has two copies and the sticks book people, and she's going to be the seventh, still waiting for it, I'm bringing that back out. So if you yeah. want, should have played poker, is now back out and trade paper back in <laughs> and you found any place you want. It's been, you know, it, it came out in April. Congratulations. <laughs> but- Yeah, no, but it's, it's that conversation and, and we love libraries and people requesting through your library is so good for authors that we suggest they do this, but these are the, these again are the business decisions that you, who knew you were going to have to make a decision like that or, or that book out again. I love the book and I wanted to write more. I was going to be a series. Um, Yeah, but they went out. And I didn't want to self-publish. That was a decision I personally had made. But now I'm a hybrid. I, whether I ever write another book in that series, I don't know. But that book's back out there. And people who like Mahjong, you know, it's a framework of the book, um, are looking for it. And I'm cracking up because who knew that decision would come up? Yeah, and who knows? Maybe there'll be a 
Mahjong novella or short story in the future. I've I've used those characters before. Yeah, it's fun. Deborah, thank you so much for such a great conversation and, uh, and so much food for thought for folks and for your service to Sisters in Crime. I look forward to working with you again on the board. Same here. Thank you, Julie. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.